Welcome to episode 47 of FRT, the IAF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, I'm here today at the IAF offices in Washington with my colleague Conan French. And we have our first return guest with us. Michael Brett gave an insightful and very accessible overview of quantum computing at the IAF Digital Finance Symposium in May, and he helped us debrief the highlights of that symposium back on FRT episode 37. Michael, thank you for joining us once again, and welcome back to FRT. It's great to be back, Brad. Thanks for having me. Great to have the Australian flavour here on FRT. Uh, when I introduced you at the symposium, I referred to you as having the best accent of our speakers that day, and we are sitting here with our flat whites as we, as we speak. But when you spoke with us last time, uh, we introduced you at that point as the founder and chief executive of QBranch. Since then, QBranch has become part of Rigetti Computing, and you're now the senior vice president of applications at Rigetti. I do want to give you the opportunity to tell us about the quantum business at Rigetti a little later. But to start, you gave a great explanation of quantum computing at that symposium. And if we can start by asking you to recap that, what are the basics of quantum computing and the differences and advantages of quantum over classical computing? Yeah, so quantum computing is an incredibly exciting emerging technology. And you can think of quantum computers as a type of computer that takes advantage of quantum mechanical phenomena. And so that means the behavior of the very, very small. So think of like the the subatomic world and some of the weird physics that goes on there. Can we build a computer that takes advantage of those effects and is able to calculate problems in 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 a different way to what classical computers do? And the reason that that's so interesting is that with a different kind of physics, it allows us to run a different kind of math and with a different kind of math, a different kind of algorithm. And potentially solve problems that we can't solve easily on a classical computer. And so what quantum computing is promising is a new tool in that toolkit where we've got lots of different computers available to us today, but they've all essentially been based on an architecture called the von Neumann architecture, which has been around since the 40s. And quantum computing is bringing a a new type of architecture, a new type of physics to computing that allows us to solve some problems uh, much more efficiently than we could with that older architecture. When people read about quantum computing and they see terms like entanglement and qubits, you mentioned it's a different type of physics, a different type of logic, and therefore a different type of computing. One of the things that you know people might read is that you can be in multiple states at a single point of time. What is it that that does in computing that brings that quantum advantage? There's a lot of strange behavior that goes on in the quantum universe, and some of them are things like an attribute called superposition, another one called entanglement. Uh, There's a phenomenon called tunneling as well, and it's combining and and making use of all of those quantum mechanical effects to give us a different kind of physics to work with. So just to pick up on superposition as one of them, which is one of the key attributes that makes quantum computing useful, and that's the ability for a computational state to be essentially a probability rather than a discrete answer. So think of it like rather than a light switch on or off, one or zero, it's more like a dimmer switch on the wall where it's something in between. And we're able to manipulate that probability during the computational process. And then when we read the answer out from there, it's either a one or a zero once we get that answer back. So it's either more dark or more light. And that gives us a definite answer from a set of probabilities. We're expanding the range of analogies there. Uh, I think uh, back at the symposium, we'd started with somebody uh, alluding to the scenario of whether or not the cat is in the box. And, and you talked instead about the, the coin while it's spinning is both a head and a tail. But I like the dimmer switch. 
Yeah, there's, uh, we've got to reach for a number of metaphors to kind of explain this stuff. But these physics, what do they result in in quantum computing? When people think about or talk about a quantum advantage, how would you explain that? You know, what is it that these computers can do better than the, the binary Boolean logic computers that we've had for the last 50, 75 years can do? Yeah, so to be really clear, quantum computers are only good at some things. You can't do everything. And it's a different type of computer, not just a faster computer. So it's incorrect to think of a quantum computer as just a, a much faster engine. It's instead a different way of solving problems. And the kind of problems that quantum computers are really well suited to are large optimization type problems, where you've got lots of combinations of things that interact with each other, and you need to pull out the best combination of that uh, type of problem. And so that lends itself really well to financial problems, things like portfolio construction, large combinations of things that all interact, or risk analytics things like fraud detection. Quantum computers are really well suited to those very complex, highly interactive type systems and being able to solve those very efficiently. So those types of problems in financial services that quantum seems well suited for has led firms to start to get involved. Where are we in the maturity curve? You see some names popping up like JP Morgan Chase and others participating in, in different quantum exercises, investing in quantum companies. Where are we sort of on the development curve? I know it's sort of early days, but you read, um, you know, quantum supremacy is coming in five years, you know, help people get a debunk sort of some of those headlines, get beyond that and start to understand where we are in the development curve. We're in a really exciting phase right now where we're making that transition from university led science and applied science and research and now into more like commercial R&D of quantum computing. And so we're seeing uh, Companies like the company I'm with now, Rigetti Computing, but also IBM, Google, Microsoft, and others building hardware that's pre-commercial hardware. So no one's using it for operational work today, but they're hardware platforms that allow us to explore and to validate some of the application ideas that we have in quantum computing. We've got some time to go yet before that hardware is sufficiently mature so that companies can start to use it in operation and in production, but we've got really good quality test beds to work on now to start to look at those applications in a really sort of deep way and then chart the pathway forward from here to being able to put them into production. So a lot of financial institutions in particular have been at the, the leading edge of that exploration, working with the hardware companies, some of the application companies out there to start to identify, develop prototypes, benchmark and plan forward where the applications of quantum computing will be so that they can be a first mover once those machines become of sufficient capacity to, to be used in production. And what does it mean when people read, oh, we've you know, passed, we have a 50 qubit computer or a 70 qubit computer. You know, what does that mean? And what does that communicate about the development curve? A qubit, a quantum bit, is the building blocks of a quantum computer. So when I was talking about on or off, one or zero before, that's a transistor. And a qubit is the, the dimmer switch. And our ability to manipulate each of those qubits gives us more capacity on the computer to work with. And so more qubits is better, but there are other measures of the quality of the system. So it's not just about the number of qubits, but also the quality of those qubits and the way that we're able to interact with them that's really important, as well as the software that sits on top of that. And so if people are following the quantum computing world, you know, qubits is a really important measure and one to pay attention to but also with equal weight, look at some of the other quality factors on the hardware systems. 
So is there a number that people should be looking for where all of a sudden we've crossed a point where it, again, has you know power that would drive more investment, production, and commercialization? Yeah. So I think that the next interesting era of quantum computing is when we get into what we call the NISQ era, N-I-S-Q. So that stands for Noisy Intermediate Stage Quantum. And uh, noisy means it's non-error corrected computers, and that's likely what we'll have to work with over the next probably decade or so. And the test beds that we have today, they're around the 20 to 70 qubits kind of numbers the companies are working with at the moment. In the next year or so, we should expect to start to see in the, the hundreds kind of range. So that next generation that comes out is in the hundreds of qubits and being able to look at the applications that we built out with the 20 qubits or so and rerunning those on the 100 qubit machines and seeing where that trajectory is taking us. You mentioned first movers, and that's a really good segue to, to talking perhaps about the market landscape. Um, and with a bias to financial services, obviously, on our part. But I'm interested in your view, you know, firstly, whether there are particular firms and whether that's by name or whether that's by a, a broader cohort that you see as leading the way in investing in quantum computing. And, and I guess aligned to that, whether this is a field where there is a substantive first mover advantage or whether it's a field where there's kind of the public good, the greater good and the overall financial system will benefit and move you know, in, in, in lock or in, uh, uh, in parallel. Yeah, so I think uh, the capabilities that are coming online, one thing to pay attention to is that all of the major cloud service providers in the world, so Microsoft, Amazon, Google, IBM, Alibaba, and others, they all have quantum computing investments of some kind. And so this is a technology that's going to manifest in the cloud. It'll be a cloud-first technology and become accessible in that environment working alongside other computers. But also we're seeing the end users like financial institutions starting to make their own investments into quantum computing technology. And whether that's building up a team internally uh, to do that work, or creating partnerships with some of the hardware companies to, to work together, or working with the large cloud service providers that they already have existing relationships with to do that. Um, and so at QBranch, uh, two of our biggest customers were financial institutions. UBS uh, Investment Bank, we did a lot of work with over the past couple of years, looking at some applications there. The Commonwealth Bank of Australia has been a leader in this technology, not only looking at the applications with us, but also investing in a hardware company based in Australia and trying to like build up their understanding. A couple of others to pay attention to, JP Morgan and IBM announced a partnership together earlier this year. And just in the past week in Toronto, BMO and Scotiabank announced a uh, partnership with a hardware company there called Xanadu. That's a local uh, connection in Toronto, looking at the hardware and software and the applications out of that. So I guess one reason I asked that question, you know, if I look at, at other technologies, and we've done a lot of work at the IAF on machine learning, one of our findings there has been that the, the most advanced or forward banks in adopting that technology, it doesn't always correlate to the scale of the firm. It's not just the biggest firms or necessarily the biggest firms that are, are the more progressed in adopting the technology. It's probably more correlated to the individual firm strategy, their willingness to invest in new and advanced analytics uh, as a core part of their own digital transformation. Um, and I guess, you know, you're seeing a, a commonality to that thread in the way that firms are approaching yeah, quantum. That's exactly right. The way that we think about the market is that the organizations that have the most to gain from quantum computing are those that are spending the most today on cloud compute, whether that's public cloud or private cloud, but those that are spending large amounts of OPEX doing big computational work uh, to, to get solutions to their problems, uh, 
quantum computing could provide an edge uh, to them, either reducing costs or getting better time to solution uh, or providing a, a new capability that they didn't have before. So if organizations have already been through a digital transformation where they're doing a lot of very heavy analytics, they therefore have the most to gain from quantum computing and are the ones that are most likely to, to make those investments into it now. And you gave a little bit of a flavor there and earlier, but some of the leading use cases and applications that you see emerging or where you think the, the first sort of aha, this, this really made a huge difference for this institution. In the, the NISC era of quantum computing, NISQ, we are working with non-error corrected qubits, which means that it's, it's noisy and, and we have to work with probabilities a lot more than, than getting discrete answers. And so in that era, it lends itself to essentially three classes of problem. And those are optimization problems, so things like portfolio construction. The second is speeding up the training phase of machine learning. So being able to use a quantum computer to better train machine learning algorithms. And then the third class of problem is simulating chemical interaction. So think of things like drug design, uh, agrotech, uh, battery design, that kind of thing. So probably less relevant to financial services, but those are the application areas that we're really focused on in this early era of quantum computing. So in the financial services space, the optimization of machine learning is kind of where we go hunting for those problems. And there's a myriad of, of applications there in the financial services sector. So it really is up to the organization to work with us to identify those problems and in particular, how specifically they do that work today. And can we potentially accelerate that with a quantum computer? And so there's quite a bit of like creative and, and uh, critical thinking type work in connecting the problems that an organization deal with today to what a quantum computer can do. And you mentioned that those are applications, particularly in the NISC era. Um, are you willing to hazard any guess on sort of timelines of that era? How long does that era look? What comes after NISC? And what are some of the different directions this technology might be able to head after some of that noise problem is solved? Yeah, so as quantum computers scale up and, and hopefully uh, we're able to solve some of the challenging problems in error detection and correction, that will enter us into a new era of quantum computing. It's going to be a while. Like we'll, we'll talk decades or so before we're into that, that uh, error-corrected phase. But that also opens up a new suite of applications that are based on some of the other algorithms that can run on that scale of quantum computer really efficiently. Things like database search, things like uh, Shor's algorithm, which is a prime factoring algorithm that has some pretty big implications for security and encryption, and a few others. But you know, everything that we do in the NISC era will also flow on and just become bigger in that error-corrected era. QBranch, you had run through, you know, certainly at our symposium and had shared a little bit of the focus of your work there. You closed a great deal with Rigetti this spring and maybe give us a little, a little sense of what the driver was for you there and what Rigetti's focus is and your focus in the market going forward. Yeah, we're really excited about this. So Rigetti Computing is a full-stack quantum computing company. They're based in Berkeley, California, and they are the leading venture capital-backed quantum computing company today. And we've been a partner of theirs for a long time. We've worked together on a number of initiatives, some research-focused things, but also some commercial work together. And one way to think about it is that Rigetti are doing the bottom-up work in quantum computing. So building their own chips, they've got their own fab, so we make our own silicon. We assemble those chips into systems. We make those systems available on the cloud. And so building up the, the quantum computer from the bottom up, 
whereas QBranch was doing top-down work. So we were talking to end users, customers, and looking at the use cases, building out applications in the software stack that heads down. And so there was a very natural fit for the two companies. We'd worked together a lot. We knew that in this early era of quantum computing that if we were going to deliver true commercial advantage fast, it would need very tight integration between the software and the hardware. And so for both companies coming together under one roof where we could bring all of that work on the, the full stack into the same development cycle so that the applications team could influence the hardware, the hardware could influence the applications, uh, just made a lot of sense. Um, and then also for Rigetti, in acquiring us, they also got essentially all, all of our customer relationships, all of that work that we've done in, in applications, and also reach outside of Silicon Valley. So being able to be in Washington, D.C., in London, and in Australia, where we've got offices and, and a team base there, just added a, a lot of capability to their own commercialization pathway. And that brings up a, another question, the sort of nodes of development that you see. You know, Clearly, Silicon Valley has been one center. China has been investing heavily in this as a state-directed priority. Europe has been working to develop their own industry. Some thoughts on, as you look at the global map, there are also you know, different approaches to quantum computing. And so any thoughts on how these different nodes around the world are developing? Yeah, quantum computing is a strategic technology. So there's some big commercial implications and industrial advantage that can be gained from quantum computing, but also some defense and security applications and concerns that come with that. And so quantum computing is part of the strategic narrative for two reasons. One, it falls into the grander kind of AI race. So between the West and China and being able to develop AI capabilities and to bring those to market, but also the, the security side of things and looking at encryption and de-encryption using quantum technologies. And so in the past two years, we've seen governments release national strategies and national initiatives around quantum technologies. So the US launched the National Quantum Initiative, a piece of legislation that went through Congress and signed by the president just before Christmas last year that committed around $1.3 billion of new money to quantum technologies. And we've seen similar things in the UK, in the EU, Canada, and Australia. And so that's one kind of group that's starting to, to work together a lot. And then also a lot of development in China between the Chinese Academy of Sciences and Alibaba announced a, a large initiative a couple of years ago. The, the headline figure on that was $10 billion. So a lot of effort going into this. And that's one of the reasons why we're seeing this acceleration of the technology, that not only is there a commercial imperative to make this technology work and bring it to market, but some national strategic imperatives as well. And as you mentioned, encryption is one of the areas that people are really focused on. One of the ideas is that quantum computers will be able to easily break a lot of current encryption methodologies. So of course, cryptocurrency is another area that people have focused on. But any, any thoughts? I mean, clearly people, I think, are a little more worried about encryption and nuclear submarines first, but you start to hear people throwing around PowerPoint terms like you know quantum-proof or quantum-ready encryption. So thoughts about how that scene develops. This is a, a really important part of this technology discussion. The scale of quantum computer required to break encryption is in that next era. So it's some time away yet. But why it's concerning is that adversarial organizations could be collecting your data today that's encrypted today with the view to opening that in the future once those machines become available. So for a financial institution, if you are worried about your customer's privacy and their view on security, if adversarial organization is collecting that data today, 
with the potential of opening it in 20 years or 30 years, that's still important for today to address. And so there's a process going on right now to identify post-quantum encryption standards. Here in Washington, D.C., there's the, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, and they are running a process right at the moment to identify what those post-quantum encryption standards will be and to then promulgate those to government and industry for us to adopt to protect against that threat so that we make that change to encryption today with the view that the computers will be available sometime in the future. It's a, a timely reminder that organized crime is also forward-looking uh, in the way that it might embrace new technology. Uh, and as, been, as has been said in a number of the CRO fora that we've had around the world, uh, we need to be conscious of the fact that this is not a static adversary that we're facing and that we need to be constantly adapting and, and evolving with that. Um, Michael, you've given us a, a number of great insights, and I want to just quickly recap on a few of them. Uh, I like the, the dimmer switch analogy, uh, which is probably helpful in, in for some of us trying to get our heads around this, this technology. Uh, I like the way you emphasize that it's really uh, a, a targeted solution for particular problems, uh, the large optimization problems. And as you said, lends itself well to portfolio construction and fraud detection as a couple of specific areas. As a snapshot of the current status, I thought it was really interesting the way you expressed how the likes of Rigetti, Google and others are building the pre-commercial hardware. It's still some way off before being ready for production, but it gives a really good quality testbed basis and thereby enables the development of prototypes. The emergence of the NISC era, uh, getting to that point of having hundreds of qubits, you know, perhaps as soon as in the next year and being able to rerun some of the cases that have been run on 20 qubits, I imagine that'll give some very enlightening results and probably shape a lot of the, the further development. And I think lastly, uh, as a view for the strategies of the, the firms across our industry, the, the point you made that the large cloud service providers all have large investments in quantum, that it will be a cloud-first technology. And I like the way you described it, that the, the banks that do best with quantum are likely to be the ones that are making the, the larger and more forward-looking investments in, in cloud, whether that's in, in private or public cloud. So, Michael, this is a fascinating and forward-looking field, and you've given us a great view into that future. Thank you again for joining us once again on FRT. My pleasure. Great to be here. Thanks. Looking ahead on FRT in the coming weeks, Conan and I will pick up some of the emerging issues with Facebook's Libra development and also some of the other initiatives we're seeing across the broader future of money topic. We're going to be looking at developments with the main cloud service providers, especially as we'll be publishing a new IAF paper very shortly. And we'll also speak with some of the great guests that we have coming to Washington for our annual membership meeting in October, including Hugh Van Stienus on his recent Future of Finance report at the Bank of England. Please tune in again for those upcoming episodes via the IAF website and on all podcast apps. I'm Brad Carr, and thanks for joining us on FRT.